0: Thank you very much. The power of story, um, children's literature's impact on society, probably it would, might be more accurate to say that I'm going to talk about um, society's impact on children's literature, because I'm, I'm most keenly interested right now in children's literature as a, as a cultural artifact, as something that... Um, we, as society, produces for our young people. And um, I, I'm very curious about unpacking this, this idea of for. Uh, children's literature, I like to say, is almost I th- the only class of literature that is not produced by the group that reads it. It's something that another group does for children, that group being adults. Now we're former children, but we're not children. And so children's literature is, uh, to my way of thinking, a kind of uh, evidence of what we as adults think is appropriate for children. Something that we want children to encounter, that we want them to read that we want them to think about or feel about. Now, my own journey into this field began long ago as a, uh, as a elementary school teacher and then an elementary school librarian. Um, when I became firmly convinced that stories were incredibly powerful in the lives of all humans, but especially children, that stories are ways that we have of making sense of ourselves, making sense of our world, making sense of all this incredible information that comes in through our senses where we sort it and organize it and make sense of it by forming it into stories. Um, You're all telling stories right now. What's, What's this guy about? Where is he going? Who is he? Why should I believe what he's going to say? Or you might be making a totally different story on whatever is on your mind uh, when you came in here and you're, you're going in a different direction. But we think in stories. And the stories we make are, in very real ways, bits and pieces of stories we already know. So, as children, learning about the world. Stories are a vital way they have of not only learning about the world, but shaping what they know into some kind of sense. I'll give a couple examples of the power of story in children's lives. And they both have to do with the story of of the three little pigs. Now, there are lots of different versions of this story out there. The one that I generally share with children comes from a collection that the uh, British folklorist, Joseph Jacobs, uh, wrote down. And this is the uh, version where the wolf uh, goes to the three houses. He blows the house of straw and the house of of sticks down, and he eats those two pigs. most of my students know a, a kind of gentler version where the pigs run to the next, next house and there's, there's no blood, but um, I'm kind of a blood guy, so we eat the pigs in my story. And when the wolf gets to the third house, of course he can't blow it down because it's made of bricks, he tries to trick the pig a couple of times, that doesn't work. So the wolf decides to come down the chimney where the pig has prepared a uh, big pot of boiling water and the wolf falls into the pot of boiling water. The pig slams the cover on the pot, boils the wolf, and uh, then eats it. The end. Now, I did that version to a kindergarten class and there was this little girl. She always sat right there usually on my toes. <laughs> and she looked up, and she was like the, uh, the Campbell Soup girl. She had these huge eyes, and she'd just look up. So I go, the end. And there's that pause that you usually get after you finish a story with kids where they're kind of thinking about it. And the little girl says, you know, I've never had Wolf. <laughs> I hear it's pretty good. There's no doubt you know, that, that that story had gotten into her mind, into her body. I'm con- totally convinced she knew what boiled Wolf smelled like and, uh, and it smelled pretty good to her. Well, the other story comes from um, comes out of Head Start. And I believe this is a true story, though it could be one of those urban legends, but it's too good for it not to, be, not to be told. Same version of The Three Little Pigs. And the teacher reads the part where the wolf blows down the house of straw, seizes the pig, kills it, and eats it. And then this little four-year-old voice says, That blankety-blank, blank, blank. blank. Okay? You know, know, imagine the vilest words you can think of because that's what he was saying. He's in it. He's in it. He understands some things about justice and right and wrong and how stories ought to go and who should be punished and who shouldn't. And that story just, violated all of those. He's making his story as he goes along. And there's no doubt in my mind that in his mind that story needed to end differently. Probably with a lot of violence. Um, probably with some very, very uh, strong weapons being used against the, uh, the wolf. And uh, and whatnot. But that's, to me, are two examples of why stories are so important. Because kids just <laughs> soak them up. I'm gonna talk about some things about children's literature, children's books that you might not normally think about. And many of them have to do with a tension that exists in that on one hand, a work of children's literature is a work of art. It's literary art. It involves writing. It involves storytelling. It can be graphic art. It can be a picture book that has illustrations that are uh, it can be um, superb, uh, certainly uh, of an, uh, of quality that could hang in a, in a gallery that much kind of thought and talent goes into the uh, into the making of, of children's book illustration so on the one hand it's a work of art on the other hand it's a commodity it's a good it's something that is produced to be sold And if it doesn't sell, things like that won't be produced in the future because children's books exist in part for someone to make a profit. We like to talk in the history of children's literature that children's literature didn't exist until children existed. And what we mean by that is that intellectually, we had an idea that there was such a thing as, as children. Uh, we usually point to the 18th century as a time period in which, in which that shift began. And you see things like the beginnings of public education Uh, And things like that that we normally associate with childhood coming into being. Well, I like to qualify that by saying that it assumes a certain kind of child. Because for children's literature to exist, there has to be somebody who has the money to purchase it. There has to be somebody who can read it. And there has to be somebody who has the time to read. So we're looking for a kid that has money, can read, and has leisure time. That suggests to me that children's literature is a middle class phenomenon. And uh, as middle classes emerge, we see children's books emerging. All right, that's background. Now, the four things I want to talk about today. When I was taking my first children's literature course 30 some years ago, we didn't talk about certain kinds of books because they weren't considered to be true works of children's literature. Uh, There were lots of those categories of books, but one in particular was the comic book. Comic books were not children's literature. As a teacher, you just didn't allow them in your class. If you saw a kid with a comic book, you know, get that out of here. You took it away from them or, or whatever, but you didn't have comic books. It was a low form of, of uh, reading, considered to be vulgar. Um, things that you, as a educator, as someone concerned with the welfare of children, you just didn't want to encourage. Well, we've seen some shifts in how the profession understands children's literature. We've moved somewhat away from the idea that we are purveyors of the very best the culture has to offer and we're going to uh, make children's lives wonderful by giving them this fantastic stuff to looking at what kids actually spend their time reading. And they do spend a lot of time reading comic books. Well, the comic book, has become high art. 300, playing on multiple screens here in town to large audiences, is um, a filmed version of a graphic novel by Frank Miller. Um, the story of the 300 Spartans and the Battle of, of Thermopylae. If you're a film buff and you haven't seen it, I recommend it. It's it's quite different. Um, it's very different. Lots of blood, but it's all computer-generated blood. I suppose that makes it that makes it fine. Now these things existed for quite a while, but they've become uh, increasingly popular, in part because they've been taken on by Uh, Japanese culture and and manga have been uh, producing uh, hundreds and hundreds of these, and uh, you can go now to the bookstores where a bookstore would never have sold comic books, now have large sections of of graphic novels. Well, okay, still seen as kind of a cult book, something that would be considered low. If you went to any of the standard textbooks, on children's literature, you wouldn't find graphic novels mentioned. Uh, just wouldn't be considered part of the canon. And then we had this American Born Chinese. It's a graphic novel. Uh, like many graphic novels, its target audience is adolescents. It won a major literary award this January from, of all people, the American Library Association. Uh, They have the Prince Award, which is given to the outstanding new book uh, for young adults. And this was the winner. A graphic novel has been recognized as something that can have outstanding literary quality. Okay, it's been accepted. Now, for reasons that I'll get into in a few minutes, we're seeing graphic novels trickle down to lower audiences. And some interesting things going on. When I was last an elementary school librarian, the hot books were The Babysitter's Club and Goosebumps. And like many librarians at the time, it was a big decision for me whether to purchase those books for my library or not. Did I want to spend scarce book budget money on books that I thought were of inferior literary quality, yet I knew would be read enthusiastically by by the kids? What was my purpose as a professional and a a lot of tension there. Well, now I can imagine the tension (laughs) going on with uh, librarians today in that uh, Scholastic has gone back and reissued the Babysitter Club novels as graphic novels. And they've done the same with Goosebumps. Now, as an academic, a question that I have is, how does this change reading? How does this change the way we understand the story, the sense that we make of it, how we feel? Because we've got a fair bit of empirical and theoretical research out there that suggests that it does matter what the medium is that getting a story through TV is different from getting a story through a book or having somebody tell it to you or seeing it on uh, the big screen on on film or seeing it as a video game. You process the story differently. You understand it differently. This is going to have an effect. I don't know what it will be, but uh, it's a trend. I don't think it's going away. And um, <clears throat> it will be interesting to see how that develops. This is um, the homepage of Scholastic's website. Scholastic uh, calls itself the largest children's book publisher in the world, and they may be right. I won't argue with them. Um, it's a fairly standard web page. And, um, let's see if I can, well, then I lose it. What I wanted to point out to you is what's tucked way down here in the lower right hand corner. And it says popular brands. And what are popular brands? Clifford the Big Red Dog, Harry Potter, The Magic School Bus, and a few others. Now, (laughs) I knew these as books, or in some cases, characters. But to Scholastic, they're a brand. And that's an important distinction to keep in mind. A brand is some bit of standalone meaning, that when you hear it, it evokes something in you that the company hopes you will identify with. Okay? Nike is a brand, and they work very hard to get people to associate the name Nike, with certain kinds of ideas and feelings. You know, just do it. You're, um, you know, we don't sell cars anymore, based on them being better cars than somebody else's cars, but rather the lifestyle that they suggest, so that you consume the brand, in order to consume the virtues that the brand carries. Well, (laughs) it's a little startling to me to see children's book companies referring to children's books as brands um, (coughs) forming this kind of um, commercial relationship. But the beauty as far as the company is concerned of the brand is that it doesn't matter what the container for the brand is. It can be a children's book, but it can be a toy. And you can just cross the street up to the growing tree and take a look at all the toys there that are spin-offs from children's books. It can be clothing. It can be games. It can be personal items, toothbrushes, toothpaste, food. I googled, or rather, I ran uh, Clifford the Big Red Dog through Amazon, excluded the books, and had hundreds and hundreds of products come up this morning that have Clifford the Big Red Dog associated with it. Again, the medium matters. I have to believe this changes affects the way we relate to the story. The story in effect or the t-shirt or the toy become in the company's words cross-promotional. In other words everything becomes an advertisement for everything else and the goal is to trigger desire that in order that if i like clifford i should accumulate as much clifford stuff as i can well yeah and i would say they're reading but what counts as reading is shifting and uh, it's probably something that in schools we haven't dealt with very well in terms of of really dealing with these these new literacies that are popping up. I think with the web, as you point out, it it accelerates everything. And uh, it's it's not only that you get it now, but that you want it now. And, And expect it now. And expect it now. And so many other forms of storytelling are so compressed um, you know, commercials. Commercials are stories. Uh, when I was a kid, a 15-second commercial was unheard of. But they've got it down now. They can tell a story in 15 seconds. And kids see thousands of these. Well, are you going to slog through, you know, page after page after page of, an, of that novel uh, to get what you're used to getting in, in seconds? A lot of kids won't. Some kids will. And, you know, that kind of takes us to Harry Potter, who breaks all the, all the rules, because when that seventh book comes out, <coughs> there'll be lines to the back of the store at midnight for kids to get an 800-page book that has no pictures in it. Going down? With well, again, it depends on what you mean by a reading skill. It takes skill to read a comic book. Um, they, they have their own conventions, their own way of, of working. Uh, a, a, a successful comic book is a technical masterpiece. I mean, when you think about how they've got to arrange things on the page so that your eye will logically follow it. And in this country, it's left to right, top to bottom. But they're going to break those codes from time to time. And to be able to do that without losing the reader. So I would say there are plenty of skills there, it's just not what we typically measure in schools. I think maybe to turn your question a different way, um, I'm getting a lot of anecdotal uh, evidence from classroom teachers who tell me that that they believe that children today are, find it more difficult to visualize. Uh, you know, that, your mind's eye, and it makes a lot of sense to me that that would be the case because almost all of our stories are accompanied by pictures nowadays. Most popular form of children's literature is the picture book. And even when you go to chapter books and, and novels, you're going to find more and more that there's, there's a, a, a more frequent use of, of illustration in those than we might have encountered a generation ago. Well, what does that mean if a kind of thinking is no longer being exercised by our brains? I mean, we're into the ability to imagine here. And that's being able to visualize what what isn't, is imagining. Well, before the printing press, you didn't have much of anything. Yeah, well, I mean, you you, Well, they existed in oral oral form. That's right, so they were just handed down in oral form. Yes. I mean, that's a whole nother scholarly question, is is at that moment that they became written, they became fixed. And you had an authorized version of something that didn't exist in an authorized form beforehand. And then we get all kinds of arguments about best versions and, and that kind of thing. Uh, some scholars believe so. It's um, it's clever work, but um, you know, we've got evidence of Cinderella-like stories going back to, uh, uh, what is it, to China, to what, about 800 CE, 700 CE. Some people feel that those stories you can trace back further into, into mythology and find remnants of, of those stories in Greek and Roman myths. Or There was a book that came out about two years ago called um, The Seven Stories, I believe it was. The, the author was Booker. And it's an argument you, we get from time to time that there are b- basically just seven stories out there. And everything is a variation off of one of those seven, seven <laughs> stories. Might be an interesting thing for you to, to track down. 30 years ago, we had scores of publishers publishing books for children independent publishers, Uh, that was their business, and they produced quite a variety of of stuff. Today the scene is dramatically different. The uh, vast majority of books are produced by a small handful of corporations who have business interests in other areas besides publishing. They're predominantly uh, media corporations, Viacom, News Corporation, uh, Disney. Um, and um, what once was a very diverse business has now collapsed into something that, that uh, doesn't show quite the, the diversity where once you maybe had 12 publishing houses, each with a different editorial staff, have now come together to form one house with one editorial staff. One, instead of 12 different kinds of decisions being made to to publish, it's now one decision. 80% of the books reviewed in school library journal come from eight companies, and they get most of the books that the profession says are, are the best. Well, what does that mean for, for us? Well, it means some interesting things because these companies operate internationally. And um, something that we are, to my mind, painfully unaware of we don't import books into this country children's books almost never unless they come from britain in their fantasy or a picture book but anything that needs to be translated it doesn't get in we are however a huge exporter of children's books and a lot of this takes place at the uh, bologna book fair which uh, will be coming up here in two weeks Almost all the children's book publishers of the world gather in Bologna to show each other their books and to sell the rights to their books to other companies. But, of course, the book companies aren't the only ones that are there. The movies companies are there. The toy companies are there. uh, Sesame Street is there. Hasbro is there. They're all looking for something that uh, they can buy that will become the next big Commercial, uh, commercial thing. Well, <clears throat> though it isn't something that affects us directly, I, I do find it fascinating um, some of the implications of us being a large exporter of children's books while not importing much. Probably many of you have seen this book, The Cheerios Counting Book. It's, um, again, a wonderful example of branding and synergy. Uh, We have the book that looks like the cereal box. And uh, you get your Cheerios out and you count them and arrange them and and whatnot. I own uh, this book. Uh, That's not unusual. What's unusual is that I I bought it in South Korea. I was teaching there and um, brought it into the class I was teaching and said, look what I found. And uh, they nodded and said, yes. And then they said, can you get Cheerios in South Korea? And someone said, oh yes, at the Walmart. Well, that maybe is lighthearted, but I just had a doctoral student finish a, a, a brilliant dissertation on books about bedtime in the United States and in Taiwan. Now, that may not to us seem like a big deal, but if we kind of unpack the idea of bedtime and bedtime being something that would be uh, the stuff of a book. And some of the most famous children's books are about going to bed. Good Night Moon, right there. Good Night Moon. Now, that book works in a culture where the child has his or her own room, and where the child is expected to leave the company of others to go to bed. That ain't necessarily how the rest of the world goes to bed. Much of the rest of the world, including much of Taiwan, going to bed is something that you do with someone else, usually your mother. If not your mother, a brother, or sister. There's no problem with abandonment because it's not an issue. It's not a big deal. But now into Taiwan come Goodnight Moon and dozens and dozens of other Western books presenting a cultural situation that is really foreign. What does that do to the kids of Taiwan, or maybe more importantly, the parents of children (laughs) in Taiwan. It puts us pressure on a long accepted practice that um, maybe had some things going for it that we've missed. Like maybe abandoning a three-year-old isn't the thing to do. Maybe it's more nurturing to lay down with the three-year-old until the three-year-old goes to sleep. Um, Recent developmental psychology suggests that that may, in fact, be the case. Okay, the last thing. Who buys children's books and where they buy them matters. Up through the middle 1980s, most children's books were bought by librarians for libraries. That was the market. Beginning in the uh, mid 80s, that shifted away from libraries to bookstores. It shifted for a number of reasons, one of which was libraries didn't have much money anymore. Their budgets were being frozen uh, programs that had been put in place in the 50s and 60s uh, were not being renewed, and so this, the money wasn't there. The money was out in the public. Now, this is not a put-down <laughs> of um, parents, but a parent buys differently from a librarian. They just, they just do. Now, think about those of you that have been in State College for 10, 15 years. Think about this place, say, 12 years ago. If you wanted to go buy a children's book in State College, you could go to The Growing Tree. You could go to Books and Bears, which was, that's all they sold, was children's books. You could go to... B. Dalton out at the mall. You could go to Little Professor, which was out by Walmart. You could go to Encore Books. You could go to the Penn State bookstore. You could go to SBS and University. You had all those choices, and each of them had a different person stocking the shelves. In some cases, like Books and Bears, you had somebody who, um, that was her life. She knew children's books inside out. She knew her customers. And um, she was there to help you find the book that you really needed to read. Uh, Svobotis, too, was was here as well. I, I knew there was a big one I was forgetting. Okay, you want a children buy a children's book today. Okay, there's still the growing tree, but books have kind of... Occupying less and less floor space over there. Um, You can go out to the Barnes & Noble big box. You can go to B. Dalton at the mall. But Barnes & Noble owns B. Dalton. You can go to the Penn State bookstore, which is operated by Barnes & Noble. That's about it, isn't it? Or you can go to Walmart and Target and Sam's Club. Um, well, you say, so what? I've been out to Barnes & Noble. There's a huge children's book section out there. What's wrong with that? And nothing. A B. <laughs> what you don't have anymore is someone in the store who knows books, that that's what they do. Very few people go to work at Barnes and Noble and see that as a long-term career move. They're there and then they're moving on, especially the people that get assigned the children's department. So you no longer have that kind of expertise. The expertise exists with the customer. If I'm Barnes and Noble, what I want in my store are books that my customers are going to recognize. I want books that will sell themselves because I no longer have a human being who's going to sell them for me. Well, what kind of books sell themselves? Pardon? Brands. Brands. Yeah. Brand stuff. Stuff you recognize. Or authors who are celebrities. Oh, yeah, Britney Spears has got a new book out. <laughs> Did you see what Jenna Bush got a half a million dollar advance uh, to do a children's book? Um, and they'll probably earn it back. Okay, those kinds of books sell, sell themselves. That's what is, um, is really what needs to be, to be stocked. Stuff you already know. Series books. But if you're that author who's written that quirky little novel, it just may not be discovered. One last twist on that. Because almost all the books that are sold in bookstores are sold in either Barnes & Noble or borders, you now have a handful of people who have a lot of say in what kinds of children's books are put in front of the public, the people who make the decisions about what books to stock. There's a a story going on uh, one of the uh, discussion groups right now about this book that just came out, 17 Things I'm Not Allowed to Do Anymore. I'll read just a page or two. I am not, let's see, here he is. I had an idea to staple my brother's hair to his pillow. I am not allowed to use the stapler anymore. I had an idea to glue my brother's bunny slippers to the floor. I'm not allowed to use the glue anymore. I am told that you will not find this book in Barnes and Noble or Borders, that their buyers have decided that this book is inappropriate, that it will encourage children to misbehave, that uh, adults will be upset that the book is available for sale and it will, in the long run, hurt business. So it's not there. And I'm sure Simon and Schuster is making arrangements with the remainder house right now to start dumping the thousands of copies that they've printed. So there's no chance that this book will be a commercial success. Generally, they're sold as remainders. I mean, the same a uh, concept that goes behind odd lots and big lots you know um, where you're trying to you know get rid of stock that isn't moving you sell it at a very low price there are bookstores out there that specialize in still be found, so to be bought. It's possible and and you can interestingly buy this book on the Barnes and Noble uh, online site oh, wow. you just won't find it in the store American Girls is the closest thing, I think, we have to a lifestyle brand uh, for kids. A uh, lifestyle brand is a brand that, that uh, tries to work its way into every aspect of, of your life. It's, um, it's why you can buy music at Starbucks. I have a whole 60-minute talk on American Girls <laughs> called Lies My Children's Books Taught Me. And it gets into all of this all of this stuff. By the way, my, my youngest daughter had, has an American Girl doll. She's 22 now. But. Oh, yeah. Lots of people buy the books. Librarians buy the books. Um, used to be able, when they were first uh, in business, uh, the company would loan the dolls to classroom teachers um, as a way of Encouraging girls to become interested in history. Well, you'll get you'll get a lot of different opinions on that. Um, I mean, there are plenty of people out there who work pretty hard to keep children from knowing things or acknowledging that they know things about touchy subjects like the ones you mentioned, and particularly sex. Um, but yeah, I mean, they know things. It may not be the things you know. That they know things. Okay.